Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode features Chris Baroni Bird, founder of A Free Car, which is a company seeking to provide mobility and power solutions to people in Africa. Before founding A Free Car, Chris worked at numerous heavy hitters in the mobility sector, such as Waymo, Qualcomm, GM, and Chrysler. Chris and I discuss his wide-ranging experiences in mobility, and then we get into why Chris decided he had to leave corporate life to start a free car, and all the work his team at a free car is doing to help improve the lives of people living in Africa. This episode was a blast to record, and Chris and I could have gone on for hours with all his great stories and insights. But with that said, let's get rolling to today's episode of Driverless. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. So, Chris, obviously you've had a pretty long and accomplished career in the mobility sector, but what originally got you interested in getting into this industry and kind of from where your career's gone from there, becoming more and more involved with autonomous vehicles and things like that? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Basically, I have a PhD in chemistry, physical chemistry, and that seems like a long way from where I am right now working on autonomous vehicles. And it's basically it shows that your what you do at university may may not be directly related to what you end up doing in your career. But but I I moved from chemistry into the auto industry through catalytic converters. So when I joined um, Chrysler in 1992, uh, they were interested in my expertise um, working on catalytic converter research. And obviously in the 90s and and even now catalysts are still important. So I started uh, Chrysler basically. Uh, working in the catalytic converter area, but then I evolved to sort of managing the uh, emerging fuel cell program that was uh, taking off in the 1990s uh, as the limitations of battery electric vehicles became apparent in, in the first iteration of uh, electric vehicles using lead acid batteries, that is. And um, fuel cells became the, the next hot thing. And, um, you know, Chrysler needed people with a you know, chemistry background who understood how fuel cells work and so forth. So I was well positioned to sort of be the, the expert within uh, Chrysler on fuel cells. And I, I leveraged that to sort of begin managing a fuel cell vehicle program. And um, that in, um, evolved into sort of managing advanced vehicle programs uh, that were electric um, and connected and autonomous over time at GM. So it's kind of a roundabout way to where I'm moving now into towards advanced vehicles. Yeah, and I think one of the points you already hit is is so well put that, you know, where, what you study in university or what you learn kind of in your formal education, it may inform your career, but it always doesn't dictate it. And I think that's something I've noticed in a lot of people in this sector, you know, myself included, I went to law school, I never thought I'd be a podcaster, but here I am. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about your time at GM, because yeah. there's something I'm really interested in that you did there. And from what I've read, and again, you know, correct me because you can't trust everything on the internet, but I understand that you and your team helped develop an autonomy skateboard at GM. Is that right? It is. It was called uh, GM Autonomy. Um, it's a concept vehicle that was introduced at the 2002 uh, North American International Auto Show or the Detroit Auto Show, as a lot of people call it. And um, it was hailed at the time as sort of a very futuristic concept. Um, we were obviously thinking a lot about fuel cells at that time. Um, but it's, it's an electric skateboard that is relevant very much towards battery, even more so perhaps than hydrogen fuel cells because the hydrogen tanks are cylinders and so forth. Um, so 
this, the starting point for that autonomy program, and the reason it was called autonomy was it was all about freedom, um, freedom from uh, dependence on foreign oil and giving designers freedom or more autonomy to design the vehicle. So we called it autonomy for that point, uh, that reason, not so much because it was autonomous driving. Why did you decide to develop a skateboard while you were working at a car company? But, um, the, the reason I got to um, develop that vehicle in the first place is that I, I'm had this real interest in the intersection of technology and design. And I could see that there was a lot of innovation that can occur within the technology space, you know, developing better engines and better safety systems for cars and so forth, and better materials to lightweight the vehicle. But I, I thought there was a huge amount of innovation possible at the intersection of design and technology. And so I, I proposed to GM in 2000 when I uh, was hired by GM to create a group uh, called Design and Technology Fusion, which was really trying to look at technologies that would enable design, enable styling, because that's obviously one of the main reasons people buy a car is because it's got great styling and great interior spaciousness and, and it looks good and so forth. And so this marriage of art and science has always interested me and I, I thought there was a huge amount of innovation occurring at the intersection of these two disciplines. And one of the first, um, uh, requests I had, or assignments if you want to call it that, was to think about how would you design a, a vehicle ground up around fuel cell technology as opposed to just uh, you know shoehorning a fuel cell into an existing internal combustion engine vehicle, which is what most people would, would, would do. And so mm -hmm. thinking about the fuel cell and how it, it not only um, has a much greater degree of shape flexibility than an internal combustion engine, uh, but also provides a lot of electricity directly without requiring a generator like an engine does, um, came up with this idea of a, of a skateboard platform with a, a simple umbilical cord that would connect the chassis with the coach or the, the, the top hat or whatever you want to call it. And basically all the electrical signals from the, the rolling chassis or skateboard would feed in through a single umbilical cord to the driver controls. Cause obviously in 2002, people weren't thinking so much about autonomous vehicles without need that don't need a driver control. Um, so it still had a steering wheel. Um, so it was conventional in that sense. But the idea was that it would have uh, only one umbilical cord connecting the two parts of the vehicle and obviously some attachment points like body on frame pickup trucks have that attach the, the, the top part to the, the chassis. What kind of reception did your team receive for this kind of a design? It was hailed at the time as being a very um, creative concept and a very influential concept. And there are some um, books, you know, that focus on concept vehicles and, and the history of concept vehicles that were published shortly after 2002. And they cited it as being uh, potentially one of the most influential concept vehicles um, of all time. And that's, that's obviously being proven to be the case because now uh, anybody wanting to design a ground up battery electric vehicle uh, is, is basically employing that same concept. And I have about 30 uh, patents or GM owns them obviously, because I worked for GM at the time, but about 30 patents related to the skateboard concept and all aspects of how it was designed and could be manufactured and so forth. And not only yeah. it's, it provides a lot of functional benefits. We, we, we obviously focus on the packaging benefits and how it allows a flat floor, uh, but it enables a low center of gravity. The autonomy concept also had wheel motors at each corner. Uh, so you could have tremendous um, packaging freedom to put as many batteries into the vehicle as possible. The front of the vehicle could be really optimized for safety. 
um, because you don't have an engine there and you may not even have a battery or a, or, or a front motor there because the motors would be at the corners of the vehicle. So I think, I think the, the skateboard vehicles uh, that are being developed now that have two motors in them, one at the front axle and one at the rear axle are, are a stepping stone. I think the ultimate solution is still four wheel motors, uh, one at each corner with um, you know, a lot of flexibility in the front end, maybe even entering the vehicle through the front becomes possible if you don't have an engine to climb over or a motor. Um, and you could really optimize the front end for, for crash. I know we're thinking now about vehicles that don't crash because they're autonomous, but you know, for, the, for the foreseeable future, vehicles may still be crashed into by manually driven vehicles. And so if you have a vehicle that has a more, more crush space at the front, um, it's going to be safer or, or you could have a shorter vehicle with the same crush space. So the same safety, but a shorter vehicle that uh, parks more easily. So I think it creates a, a lot of benefits for the engineers as well as the designers and obviously for the end customer, this, this concept. Yeah. And you know, you had something that as a lawyer, I can really appreciate. Uh, there's this you know, legal doctrine called the crash worthiness you know, doctrine. And I'm sure you made a lot of lawyers very happy at GM and elsewhere, whenever you were saying, you know, we need to think about how this is going to happen when it does crash or if it does crash, because yes. it's obviously really important uh, for the user. One it of the is. things, oh, sorry, go for it, Chris. No, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, we can think about concepts where vehicles don't have to crash into each other either because uh, um, all the vehicles have sensing technology that means they don't crash into each other, but that's a sort of a long-term high-tech scenario or a near-term scenario might be where city centers begin uh, begin to ban internal combustion engine or even um, electric vehicles. Um, like some cities in, in, in Europe are really thinking hard about even banning uh, electric vehicles because it's not just the emissions that are a concern, but also the, the safety and the space that these vehicles take up on the road and the congestion they cause. So some cities are even thinking about, about banning traditional vehicles, whether they're electric or not. And in, in that case, you might begin to think about introducing a vehicle that doesn't have to meet all the crash standards anymore because there's no cars to crash into anyway. That well, I can't wait to see that if, if that comes to fruition. <laughs> and that um, my Africa project, uh, which I want to get to at some point. No, Chris, we're going to spend. Uh, I'm trying to kind of slow yeah, play yeah. it because I have so many questions about the work you're doing with that company. Um, yeah. Let's let's turn to Qualcomm in the interim. Yeah. So at Qualcomm, i I understand that you had a, a big hand in further developing concepts that at that point were kind of in their infancy, such as wireless charging and vehicle to X communication. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And can you explain for our audience why, again, because this is kind of before, now it's pretty ubiquitous. Everyone knows V to X communications are important. Everyone knows that these things are relevant towards our future mobility, but can you kind of explain to the, our audience why you thought vehicle to X communications were so important before it really become like a common term in the industry yeah. yeah absolutely and you know a lot of people were surprised when i left gm in 2012 to um to move to qualcomm um and it was because i could see the car becoming a smartphone on wheels so to speak uh nowadays everybody makes that analogy back in 2012 it wasn't so um you know popularized uh but i could see that the technology of the car of the future was being designed and developed by companies like qualcomm that were so embedded in the smartphone and you know Qualcomm um, is best known for its chips that go into smartphones but they do a lot more than just that and in fact they make most of the things that go into a smartphone 
and uh, they were looking at uh, branching out into automotive and, and thinking seriously about um, wireless electric vehicle charging where you park the car over a pad and it charges wirelessly without having uh, you plug in. And obviously that's quite interesting if you have an autonomous vehicle that can park itself in your garage, you'd like to be able to just park over a pad. So I thought that was a very interesting technology. What about VDAX communications? Qualcomm is a, a major provider of uh, wireless and cellular chips for automobiles as well as for smartphones and uh, other applications. So I think it was uniquely positioned to work both ends of the, um, the equation, both on the vehicle side as well as on the the other side that's being communicating with the vehicle, whether that's a smartphone that's being held by a person or a cyclist, or whether it's a chip that's embedded into a, a traffic light or into some other part of the infrastructure. The ability of vehicles to communicate with the surroundings is, is tremendously beneficial to helping the development of autonomous vehicles. Now, a lot of autonomous vehicle developers are, are not wanting to rely on this this technology because they want to make sure that the vehicle itself has all of the sensors on it necessary to enable it to drive autonomously. But I think if, if you can add uh, wireless communications between the vehicle and its surroundings, you can um, definitely um, increase the, the safety and the robustness and the reliability of, of how these vehicles operate autonomously. Can you give any examples? If the weather conditions are really, really poor, and you, you really can't see anything outside your windshield, um, the vehicle could still be able to communicate wirelessly with other vehicles to avoid collisions, or, or maybe more, more realistically or more frequently, if you're coming up to an intersection and you're not sure if another car is gonna be coming um, at 90 degrees very quickly and, and crashing into you, you have to always hesitate if you're an autonomous vehicle when you get to an intersection just to make sure nothing's coming that you can't see. And that's a challenge with the sensors because they can't see around corners. Whereas right. uh, you, can oh, sorry. With, you can communicate with other vehicles or with pedestrians or cyclists uh, or other road users who may happen to have a smartphone with them as, as is increasingly the case. So it basically becomes an additional sensor which adds very little cost to the vehicle and it's already embedded in your smartphone. So it was a natural for Qualcomm to be looking into this technology and um, I think it, it, it has a, a significant role to play in making sure that not only the vehicles communicate with each other to um, avoid accidents, but also that they can communicate with each other to improve traffic flow. Because autonomous vehicles that are purely sensor driven will still have some latency or lag as, uh, as they, as they um, observe each other. Think about adaptive cruise control and when a car accelerates from a traffic light, and you have your vehicle is equipped with adaptive cruise control, there's a little bit of a lag time before the sensors on your car, like the radar and cameras, can see that the car in front is, uh, is moving off from the traffic light, and there's a bit of a lag time. But, but if the vehicles could communicate with each other instantaneously, you could platoon and uh, improve traffic flow. So I think there's traffic benefits as well as safety benefits when you combine E2X with um, the autonomous sensing technology that's being developed for cars. Who do you think is going to cover the costs of the V2X and V2V infrastructure that needs to get built out as we progress towards autonomous vehicles? Cars communicating with other cars, I think there's um, an advantage to the car company or the, the mobility company um, in, um, in interjecting this technology 
into their vehicles because yes, it's, it's adds some cost to the vehicle, but basically it allows the autonomous vehicle to operate uh, more reliably. And that's obviously for the benefit of the, the car company or the mobility company. So in, in a sense, it may end up saving cost because if you have to um, rely purely on the sensors, you're gonna have to make the software a lot more capable and robust for all the possible edge cases that could be addressed with this, this additional V2X sensor. And then with respect to the infrastructure cost, I don't think it's as astronomical as, as, um, as you might think, because if we're talking about deployment of autonomous vehicles in, in limited geo-fenced geo areas, uh, you might only need to put this, this infrastructure um, communications into um, challenging locations where the autonomous vehicles are, are struggling. Uh, it might be at uh, intersections um, that are somewhat ambiguous. So you, it, it's not like it's uh, millions of different places where you have to put this infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's a fixed um, number of, of locations. And uh, again, if you, if you really want to introduce a, an autonomous vehicle uh, mobility service as quickly as possible and generate revenue and so forth, then, and you, and you don't rely on this technology, you may have to uh, wait longer because you'll have to take longer to um, iron out all of the software issues with the, the addition, with the existing approach. That's interesting. So in a way, kind of, you know, these companies taking on these costs is almost like paying a speeding ticket, right? You, you pay the fee, but at that point, you're able to get to market quicker and hopefully benefit yeah. from the revenue generation in that way. Yes, it might actually save you money versus not relying on it at all. Um, and again, we're not talking about rolling this out across the whole country and, and having the vehicles needing to op interoperate with, with other manufacturers' vehicles and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if you're a mobility uh, company looking to introduce an autonomous vehicle service, you, you, you just have to retrofit your vehicles and a limited number of in infrastructure installations and you could get the benefits. So a lot of the challenges that people talk about with V2X about um, you don't get the benefit until all of the vehicles have it, I think it's a, a little bit of an exaggeration. I'd like to talk a little bit about your time at Waymo, where you were the chief engineer of the Future Vehicles program. Can you tell the audience what your top priorities for your team were while you were at Waymo? Well, I, I want to make clear, I'm not, I'm not a software expert, so I wasn't in, uh, involved on the software side, which is obviously the, the key ingredient for uh, Waymo's autonomous vehicle efforts. Absolutely. I was chief engineer on future vehicle programs, so I, I just want to make that clear. I wasn't the overall chief scientist or the software guru or anything like that. My, sure. background, my background at GM and um, to some extent Qualcomm was more on the vehicle side, uh, developing you know, future vehicle uh, technologies and ideas. And so when I um, moved to Waymo um, in Mountain View, my responsibilities was really to think about future vehicles and, and how might they be designed differently if they were autonomous. And um, again, that was a, a very, fascinating uh, work experience, um, but I, I, I had to um, cut it short because um, this, this, this uh, burning idea I had about developing a vehicle for Africa was become, becoming uh, so critical to me that I, I felt I couldn't do justice to that idea while still working at Waymo. So I, I, need, I needed to start working on this, this other project that I, um, that I'm focused on now for Africa. And that became a passion that I really wanted to invest my time with. So let's talk a little bit about that. First off, is it a free car 
or Afrikar. <laughs> a lot of people okay. have a difficulty pronouncing it, so maybe it's not the right name, but uh, it's a free car. So basically the idea was that um, um, I'm taking the ex my expertise from GM and Chrysler and so forth and Qualcomm in terms of advanced automotive technologies and, um, and the volunteer work that I have done in, in Africa, in villages in rural Africa, and mating the two together to create a, a, what I think is a very... Um, uh, useful idea for solving some of the challenges that people face in rural Africa in terms of mobility. How did you come up with that name? I thought of this name, a, a free car, to sort of imply that it's a really cheap car, very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like the, the continent Africa. But obviously this, this solution is, is applicable all over the world, not just in Africa. But I think it's, it could be tested first in Africa. That's where it's needed most. And that's where people, I think, are more open to um, a game-changing idea because uh, there's a real need for it and there's you know, less competition, so to speak. Sure. And, you know, in our show notes, we'll obviously include a link to a free car's website and things like that. But for the sake of our conversation, can you kind of explain to our audience what the vehicle you're developing at a free car looks like? So I should go back to when I did some volunteer work in Mali, which is in West Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. Back in 2009, 2010 timeframe, while I was still at GM, I, I went on vacation and uh, went to Mali to do some volunteer work. And uh, I, I was living in the village and um, this for like a, a week or two at a time. And basically I could observe uh, one of the people in the village. He, he was basically uh, charging lead acid batteries like the type you find in your, your car, just a starter battery. And he was charging it using a solar panel that had been donated by BP. And uh, when he had charged this lead acid battery, uh, he had a few of them, he would rent them out to people in the village. And people in the village uh, would, would um, pay to, to rent these batteries and, and use it for lighting at night because the alternative is to use kerosene, which um, you know, creates pollution and, and is a bit of a fire hazard as well and is not cheap either. So the battery uh, with, in combination with LED lights created um, a way for people to work at night and generate extra income. You know, um, one guy was sewing and making clothes at night using LED illumination. And then when the batteries were discharged, he would take these batteries back and recharge them again and then rent them out. So he had a little business going. So that was one idea that uh, struck me as quite kind of interesting. And then um, during the trip there, I, I had to walk maybe 20 kilometers one day between three different villages working on water pumps. And I, I thought there has to be a better way of moving around than just walking, because it takes a lot of time and uh, a lot of energy to do that. So I, I combined the two ideas together. I thought, what if, what if there was a, a solar powered electric vehicle that could provide not only, not only power, but also uh, transportation? Because that's what you need both of them in rural Africa, because there's nowhere to plug in. There's no electric grid to speak of. And there's very well, and, and luckily, uh, the person you know considering this question also had a background in both mobility and uh, batteries, right? So exactly. you were the perfect guy for the job. That's what I thought. I thought you know this is meant to be. You know, I, I have a lot of expertise in this area, and this is fascinating. So I, I could combine something that I was really interested in, which could help make a big difference to people's lives, with something that I knew quite a bit about. So the idea never really left me. Um, I thought about it on and off for you know six, seven, eight years, and uh, finally got to a point where I said, you know, I need to focus a lot more of my time on this, and, it, you know, I basically need to leave corporate 
life and, and basically work on this uh, pretty much full time. So um, the idea I'm developing right now is, is not so much developing a vehicle, but developing what I call a kit, a solar kit. What do you mean by a kit? So think of a, think of a solar panel, think of a small a lithium ion battery, maybe 48 volts, two kilowatt hours. So I have a Chevy Volt and one of the modules, one of the battery modules in the Chevy Volt is, is 48 volts, two, two and a half kilowatt hours. And basically at the end of life, you know, we're going to have so many batteries in the future uh, end of life because uh, all the car companies are investing heavily in electric vehicles and lithium ion battery electric vehicles. At some point, we're going to have a lot of batteries that we need to figure out what to do with in terms of second use or recycling. And I, I see that this could be a good market. These low speed electric vehicles that don't require a lot of the performance uh, capability that you see in a car, you know, even at the end of life, there's still plenty of usable capacity and power left for the type of low speed application I'm talking about. So think of the solar kit combining this um, solar panel uh, that might be the roof of the vehicle, um, a small battery that comes from a used electric vehicle and a very small motor, like one or two kilowatts. And if you put that together with the, the necessary electronics and create a kit that could be like a standard, standardized kit and, and uh, distributed like an Ikea box around the world and local communities around the world, maybe in Africa or in rural India or, or elsewhere, could take this kit and then make whatever vehicle they want from this kit. So instead of telling them, I've got a vehicle for you, uh, why don't you use this vehicle and, and buy it? I'm thinking more along the lines of enabling them to create whatever vehicle they want using locally available materials um, and parts. But the, the sophisticated components would be mass produced and standardized to get the high reliability and, and to get the cost down is the, the vision I have. Can you give some examples of forms this kit could be modified to supply with power? So this, this kit could go into something as simple as a, um, a wheelbarrow, if you want to have something like a motorized wheelbarrow, or it could go mm -hmm. into something more like a, a golf cart or something in between like a, a rickshaw, you know, a three-wheel tuk-tuk. Um, so whatever the vehicle is, and um, I'm not prescribing what that is, but I'm, I'd, I'd like to enable that creativity to occur in the local communities and the local communities, which might be cities in Africa, could make this vehicle using, using parts that are available from scrapyards or, or renewable materials like wood or bamboo to make the structure. They have access to the motorbike and bicycle and, and car components that are in scrapyards. So they could basically cobble together vehicles using locally available scrap parts and mechanical parts and, and structural elements and, and just have the electrical system which is more sophisticated, more complicated, more expensive, be mass produced to have to get the cost down and the reliability up. And that's the, the vision I have. Um, sure. And, and then one the, of the questions, oh, sorry, go for it, Chris. Oh, sorry. And then this vehicle, even though it might be produced in a, in a factory in a, in a city, the idea would be that it would be deployed in the rural villages, which may be, you know, 50 miles outside the city where there's no access to the grid. I mean, it's possible it could also be used in the city to provide last mile transport, uh, but it, it definitely has application in the rural areas, but I, I don't see it being made initially in the rural areas, because it's just logistically a lot harder to create a factory there. Sure. And so and just to break that down a little further, then what you're proposing is supplying this kind of kit 
to a company based in Africa that would then manufacture multiple vehicle forms using your kit. Oh, they might they might choose to make one type of vehicle because they've they've done some research in that in their local area and they've they've seen a a market for a particular type of vehicle obviously that if you make a vehicle that has um less capability but lower cost that might be the sweet spot or maybe it's a a higher higher utility utility vehicle it's more expensive and that might be uh, attractive so i don't know what the right solution is whether it's one community might make a vehicle using bamboo another might use scrap metal from an old car another might use wood Uh, somebody might make a you know, a, a tuk-tuk type vehicle, a three-wheel vehicle with two wheels at the front and one at the back or one at the front and two at the back. Somebody might make it that's optimized for transporting people, whereas another company might develop one optimized for transporting goods like crops or water or wood or whatever. So it has many different applications. You know, a hospital might order some of these to allow people to, um, as an uh, like an ambulance or it might become a school bus, you know, where it could transport children to school instead of children spending four hours walking to school and back each day, maybe it could be cut down to one hour. So there's many, many different use cases and applications and materials, and it's huge uh, variations or permutations. And I'm not able to uh, figure out what the right solution is, but I want to enable all of those possibilities. Yeah, and are are there any regulations that you're imposing from a free car on the companies you're, you know, selling these kits to, to kind of further that mission? Because it sounds like your, your values and your purpose behind developing this company are very altruistic. Yes. But I mean, you obviously being in the private sector for as long as you have been, you can understand that I'm sure other people may not have as altruistic intentions. And so are you guys kind of imposing any regulations or using any ways to kind of check and balance these companies that you're providing these kits to, to, you know, prevent them from exploiting uh, customer base or, you know, kind of using these kits in a way that you wouldn't further the mission and goals of free car? Well, that's a good question. Uh, It's still early days and we're still in the process of designing it. I'm working with an engineering company locally to really flesh this out further. And, um, you know, the thought would be that we develop um, a kit and then if somebody designs a vehicle around it that is um, is hazardous or doesn't meet the the uh, you know the use that it's intended for, that's a risk we have to consider. And so one one thing one thing we might want to do is develop some reference designs, and basically say if you if you integrate it into a vehicle with this type of structure and this type of thickness of, of, of material and so forth, then it'll have this ability to carry uh, payload. Whereas if you use different materials or different uh, strength materials and you want to carry uh, the same payload, it, it won't work. So we might provide guidance there in terms of some use cases or reference designs for what vehicles could work. But the thought would be that over time, these communities will experiment and, uh, and hopefully develop new designs that work. And, and it would be ideal if it could be open source. So a community halfway around the world could learn from that and not have to reinvent the wheel. They could basically take designs from each other and basically make their own vehicles. No, that, and that's interesting. One of the things I've really enjoyed, the more I've read about this and more I've read about your work with a free car is that there are so many ripple effects of this technology. Or in other words, you're not just looking to provide people in Africa more mobility options for the sake of mobility, right? 
Right. But you seem more interested in the ways that these mobility options can provide exponential benefits to them. And, and one of the ones I, I read about, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the ones I saw you discussed was this idea around fertilizer yes. and the idea that, you know, providing these kits and providing these vehicles, people would allow their riders to go further distances to obtain larger payloads of things like fertilizer, which could they could then bring back to their villages and would in turn assist them in greater production of food that's helping to quell starvation and malnutrition in these areas. Yes. Uh, and obviously, I mean, that's amazing, right? Just yeah. the idea that providing mobility can help quell things that are so prominent in this area and with this demographic, uh, like starvation, malnutrition. Absolutely. It's un- yeah. We, we talk a lot here in the developed world about how transportation is a, an enabler for upward mobility, and, and that's true on steroids. If you think about Africa, it could really make a huge impact. And we're not talking about high performance vehicles here. We're talking about vehicles that may only have a range of 20 or 30 miles a day and maybe may have a top speed like a bicycle of you know, 15 miles an hour. But that's five times faster than walking speed, uh, which instead of five hours of, of walking, maybe it's one hour and saves you four hours of time. So yeah, fertilizer, this vehicle might be owned and operated by a, an organization like a hospital or a school or a supermarket or by an operator, an entrepreneurial operator, uh, like an Uber driver. He goes around providing power as a service and transportation as a service. And he may, he may go um, to collect fertilizer for the people in the village and bring it back and get paid by the people who need the fertilizer. And then when the crops are actually grown, um, a lot of crops just end up uh, going to waste. They perish because there's no easy way to get them to market. Uh, with, whereas with this vehicle, they could be. Uh, transported to market, you get a better price for them. And again, the operator would uh, basically take the crops and uh, transport them to market, come back and get paid by the people um, that he enables that transport for. And another thing is charging cell phones. Um, You know, people even in the poorest parts of the world uh, are willing to pay um, 10 cents to charge a phone. And um, you know, if you charge 10 phones a day, that's $1 right there. And, you know, if you do the calculations, charging 10 phones only uses about um, 2% of the battery capacity when you're talking about a battery of this size. Um, so I think there's a real revenue opportunity here for an operator of the vehicle, not only to provide transportation, but also to generate and, and provide power, which is equally as important. And with the right takeoff units, you could use the power to um, grind corn or pump water. It could be used for refrigeration of, of food or vaccines. It could be used for lighting. So electricity has lots of uses as well. And we normally think of electric vehicles just as a, a form of transport, but uh, power is equally important in, in parts of the world where there's no grid. And that's what makes this so interesting to me is that there's mobility implications. There's simple things like charging cell phone, those implications. I mean, the work you're doing here is just having so many wide-ranging yeah. impacts on people and, and i think that's what makes this so special of a company and i think it also we talk when we talk today about electric vehicles we think they're we argue some of us about how environmental are they because the batteries are so big and they take a lot of energy to make in the first place and then the electricity for them comes from fossil fuels in many cases so the environmental benefits are a, a good but they're not profound because these vehicles are still the same size as traditional vehicles 
when you get to a vehicle size I'm talking about, it's probably 10 times lighter. So 200 kilograms instead of 2000 kilograms. Um, and it gets all of its energy from the sun because there's no other way to get energy for this vehicle. And then it's using um, renewable materials or scrap materials. So it's really taking this idea of a circular economy um, to, that, to that part of the world. And I think that's, that's why I think that Africa could be a, um, a leap, leapfrog because I think that these type of solutions are gonna be needed increasingly here in the developed world. If we think about uh, climate change, um, if, if we expect more and more of the developing world to uh, become affluent enough in the future to afford electric vehicles, if everybody is using electric vehicles, um, the same as the type we use, it's probably not gonna help the, the climate at all because uh, you're gonna have so many more of them that it'll, it'll offset the fact that they may be a little bit cleaner than internal combustion engine vehicles. So the vehicles themselves have to be dramatically lighter and they have to get a lot more of their energy directly from the sun. Um, and I think it's in, in Northern climates like Michigan, uh, where I'm based, you know, you can't rely on the sun all year round and certainly not in the winter. So you'd have to plug it in. But um, in the summer, at least, when the strain on the electric grid is high, uh, it really helps a lot to have uh, a vehicle that's electric and that's solar powered. And as I mentioned before, if you think about uh, goods delivery, do, uh, low cost goods delivery in city centers, do these vehicles need to be traditional cars or could they just be um, low speed electric vehicles with a much lower initial cost and operating cost and allow a lower cost goods delivery. So I think the principles embedded in Africa are gonna be increasingly important for urban mobility in the future here in the developed world, especially if we get to uh, cities that might ban cars from the city center, which I think is gonna happen more and more in Europe. Yeah, and, and as that happens and as this company progresses, I'm just kind of wondering, is there any way for you know, people like our listeners or others to kind of help or support or get involved with the free car? Because it sounds like this is something that, you know, is not just great for, you know, humanitarian reasons, but also just really interesting. And I'm wondering if there's any way for other people outside of the company to get involved and help support your mission. Well, not yet, but I'm, I'm thinking about that in terms of a, a social media campaign. So um, uh, stay posted on that. But I, I appreciate that uh, request. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get on out of here? Because I know your time's precious and I don't want to keep you. No, that's, that's great. This has been very, very um, helpful. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, obviously, we'll have our listeners look at all your work at a free car and hopefully we'll have you on in the future. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye.